You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Good morning, church. Good to see you. Uh, Glad you are here with us. If we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Clint, one of the guys who has the privilege of serving as a pastor here. Uh, If you have a Bible, will you turn to Acts chapter 1? Acts chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you or on your phone, there should be some in the seat backs around you. Would love it if you would grab one of those. Turn to Acts. Uh, If you don't know where that is, it is the first book of the Bible after the gospel narratives. So if you know where Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is, if you can find that, you can find Acts, the one right after. If you get to Paul's letters or the rest of the New Testament, gone too far. All right, bring it on back. Um, The reason I'm having you turn there is because this morning, We are starting a new sermon series in this book, and there are two things that I hope to accomplish together in our time uh, this morning. The first thing I want to do is answer the question, why Acts? Why have we made the decision um, to, as a church in this season, study through at least the first part of the book of Acts together? Uh, And secondly, I want to spend some time introducing the series, introducing the book, and we're going to get through just the first three verses of Acts 1 today, okay? So if you know anything about Acts, it has 28 chapters, over a thousand verses in those 28 chapters. So at the rate of three verses per Sunday, it would take us over six years to get through this book, okay? And before you start packing your things up to leave, I want, I want you to know, be encouraged, next week I'm planning to preach five verses, okay? So that means we'll be, we'll be done in four years, okay? Now I'm kidding. Uh, not about the five verses thing, because that's true. I am going to preach five verses next week, but the, the four years thing. Um, as we work through this book, we are going to take a slow crawl through the first couple of chapters, and then the narrative picks up quite a bit. And again, I'm not sure if we're going to go through the whole book, but we are at least going to spend this semester in the first several chapters of the book of Acts. Um, and, and the reason why we're going to spend so much time in these first few chapters is twofold. One, because of how significant they are to understanding the book. And the other reason is because, honestly, how significant these few chapters are to understanding the Christian life, understanding what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So first question, why Acts? Um, As we have prayed and considered what would be best for us this season, as we come into the room together week in and week out, why do we land in the book of Acts? There are are several reasons. Uh, I'm gonna give us two this morning. The first reason we're preaching through the book of Acts is because it's in the Bible. That's the first reason. And that sounds like a joke because the way that I said it, it's not, right? I I think uh, the start of a new sermon series is an opportunity for us to be reminded of something. And this is the thing. Genesis 1 says that God spoke creation into existence, okay? And our God is not distant or inattentive. He didn't just create and then step back to see what would happen or create and then move on to something else. He has spoken and he still speaks. And the primary way that God speaks to his people is in and through the pages of scripture, right? John 1 refers to Jesus as the word who became flesh, who came and dwelt among us. Colossians 1 says that he, Jesus, is the visible image of an invisible God, meaning he isn't just high in the heavens out of our ability uh, to reach or to understand, but rather Jesus came down from heaven to us so that we could know who he is, what he has done, and what he is like. And every page in the Bible points to him. It's about him. All of the Old Testament looks forward to Jesus, and the entirety of the New Testament is about Jesus, his life, his ministry, his death, resurrection, and eventual return. 
And so since that is true, since these are God's words to us and they reveal to us who he is and what he's done, there is nothing more important for us to consider as we come into this room together. Um, Again, the start of this series is a new opportunity to remember this, that what you and I need most when we come in here is not the opinion of one of our pastors or even my opinion, what I have to say, right? Let me just be honest with you. I'm not that interesting, not that smart. There is one person on the planet who thinks I'm that interesting. It's a three-year-old girl. She's about to be four. She's amazing, okay? That's it. She's the only person on the planet who would want to listen to me as much as you all have been listening to me. Um, and I'm definitely not that smart, right? I went to public school in Southwest Georgia, all right? They just don't come out of there smart as a whip that much, you know? Um, now, on a serious note, our, our elders are convinced that what you and I need when we come in this room is not seven ways to make this your best year yet. Isaiah 40, verse eight says that the, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Listen to this. It's not, it's not just that God's word is good for you, all right? Um, you ever tried to feed a kid something they don't want to eat, like broccoli? What do you say to try to convince them? Eat your broccoli. It's good for you. You know, like that's going to move the needle for them. They're like, oh, I didn't want it before, but now that you said it's good, I'm going to give me a whole plate full of it, you know? No. It's good for you. Um, you know how much broccoli my, so my three oldest children, between all three of them, they almost have 18 years of life on planet Earth, okay? You know how much broccoli they've eaten in those 18 years? If you were to round it all to a whole number, it would be zero, okay? <laughs> and, and would they be healthier if they, instead of just chicken nuggets and grilled cheese, and when I say just chicken nuggets and grilled cheese, I don't mean that like hyperbolically, I mean just chicken nuggets and grilled cheese. Would they be healthier if they ate vegetables? Yes, but what if you ask them? They're doing just fine, right? And I use that silly example because I think that's how a lot of Christians think about Bible reading. And prayer for that matter too, but that's a sermon for another day. We think, I know it would be good for me, but quite honestly, I'm doing just fine. And here's the thing. These words aren't just good for you, they are essential for you. In Matthew 4, Jesus is in the wilderness and he's been fasting for 40 days and Satan comes to tempt him and he questions his identity, which is what he does to each of you and I when he tempts us and he says, if you are the son of God, then command these stones to be turned to bread. And how does Jesus respond? He quotes Deuteronomy 8, you know that place where Bible reading plans go to die? He quotes Deuteronomy 8, which recounts God's faithfulness to Israel the 40 years that they spent in the wilderness after the Exodus and God every day provided manna for his people, Jesus quotes that passage of scripture to Satan when he tempts him and he says, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Church, it's not just good for you, it's essential. Colossians chapter three describe what a life of actually following Jesus looks like. The apostle Paul in verse 16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly because when the word keeps, gets deep down in you it actually changes you the idea here is that you would get it wouldn't just be knowledge of God's word 
It's not just, I know what the Bible says. It's when the, the truth of God's word, the truth of scripture gets out of your heads and it works its way down into your hearts and actually begins to change you and make you into who you were supposed to be. This is the Holy Spirit inspired and errant word of God. It is our ultimate authority. It's what we preach. It's what we counsel. It's what we pray. It's what we sing. It's why we are named Community Bible Church. So why Acts? Because it's in the Bible. Not just a good thing to do, it's, it's what we need to live. Here's the second reason. Because we want to be the church. We spent the first three weeks of this year um, defining a term that is used a lot in Christian sermons and conversations and in books and all sorts of things. And it's a word that we felt like our church needed a definition for. Uh, a word that we could provide some common language for so that we would be equipped to understand uh, the word. And, and what was the word? Discipleship, good. Here's how we defined it. A lifelong pursuit of following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and living on mission with Jesus. And I don't know if you, if you picked up on this over those three weeks, but uh, because we were kind of dripping this rather than leaning into it completely because we knew that this series was coming. But when you read the Bible, particularly the New Testament, one of the things that becomes unmistakably clear is the, the way that Christians follow Jesus and the way that Christians are changed by him and the way that Christians live their lives on mission with him, the way we do that is together. The way we do that is together as a part of the local church. I want you to see this in Ephesians chapter two. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There's a key to understanding these first few verses of Ephesians 2. It's a word at the beginning of verse three, and it's the word all. We all, right? Because the argument here is that you were dead in your sin. So the question that we have to answer is, who was? And he says, all of us. No matter where you grew up, how you grew up, how much you went to church, how much Bible knowledge that you had, we were all spiritually dead. Dead, spiritually. Unable to do anything to, to, to change our uh, situation. What do dead people do? Nothing. This is what the Bible is saying about our spiritual condition. No hope, no shot of, of doing anything to change our situation but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive, what's the word there? Together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus and here's why, so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He goes on in chapter two to explain all those us's and we's in verse four to seven. There's a ton of us and we and us and we's. It's this communal language and what he says is that since we have through Christ, the broken body has shed blood of Christ on our behalf, since we have been reconciled from death to life, since we have been brought from enemies of God into right relationship with God the Father, we are now belonging to him as sons and daughters. And the point that he goes to make in Ephesians chapter two is if you have been reconciled to God the Father as a son or a daughter, then you are also reconciled to one another 
as brother and sister. That's the point. He says that these things are not mutually exclusive. In CBC, we are studying the book of Acts because our hope is not just that we would all come to church. Our hope is that we would be the church. That we would be the church. And the book of Acts documents for us the foundation and the formation of the first Christian churches. That's what we're gonna see here in the book of Acts. It shows us how men and women go from being dead in their sin to being made alive together in Christ. And so the question that we're gonna be asking as we work through this book this semester is what are the things that these men and women were formed by, founded on? What are the things that marked them, their lives together and their relationship with God? And my hope and my prayer is that as the Spirit of God would reveal these things to us, that those things that marked them would also become true about you and me, about our lives together. Again, because we don't wanna just Come to church. We want to be the church. Why Acts? Because it's in the Bible and because we want to be the church. Look with me, Acts 1, verse 1. I'm going to read the first three verses for us. It says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen and he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. These first few verses in this book actually create some questions that we need to answer. And one of those is right at the beginning of the book, the author basically tells us that this is a sequel, right? Because he says in the first book, O Theophilus, which means that this isn't the first book, this is at least the second book. So the question we have to answer is, what is the first book? If this is the, the sequel, what is the prequel? And the answer to that is the Gospel of Luke. Let me show you how we know. Uh, this is how Luke's Gospel starts. Luke 1 will be on the screen. It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write in an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. It should sound familiar. That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are written or dedicated to this guy named Theophilus. So you may be wondering, who is Theophilus? We don't know, all right? This is the only two times this guy is mentioned in the Bible, Luke's one, Luke 1 and Acts 1. So we don't know who uh, Theophilus was. What we do know is why Luke was writing to him. He said in verse four, that you may have certainty concerning the things which you have been taught, which means that Luke wrote this gospel and the book of Acts to help Theophilus see the truth, that he would see the truth about who Jesus is, about what he did, and about the formation or the spread of the church through the Roman world. Some scholars think that the reason why Luke dedicates these books to Theophilus was because, uh, Thilo wow, Theophilus, Snuffleupagus has almost came out there. <laughs> Shouldn't have said that. Theophilus um, was the one who was bankrolling the whole thing. That's why, that's why some scholars think that. He was paying for it. It's expensive that, that Luke would spend this time doing this research, this historian, to write these things down, this orderly account. Some scholars think that. Other scholars think that Theophilus wasn't even a, a person at all. Uh, the name Theophilus means lover of or loved by God. And so it could be that 
Theophilus in Luke's mind is just this generic reference for anybody who had heard and been taught about who Jesus is and what he's accomplished, but maybe had some questions uh, and, and maybe some doubts and was trying to wonder about it. So maybe Luke's just writing to them. Uh, for what it's worth, I do think Theophilus was an actual person. The reason why is because the title that Luke uses when he addresses him in Luke 1, he says, uh, it's, it's significant. He says, he refers to him as the most excellent Theophilus. And that's interesting because Luke actually refers to two other people that way in the Gospel of Acts. Um, once in chapter 23, or the Gospel, the book of Acts, once in 23 and once in 26, and both times when he says most excellent, he refers to these Roman officials, these Roman either governors or people who had this you know, uh, position of power or influence. One guy was named Felix, most excellent Felix, one Festus, most excellent, right? So it seems likely to me that that's who Theophilus was as well. Uh, Side note, if you are expecting a baby boy soon, got some good options this morning. Theophilus, Festus, Felix, right? Any one of those. Either way, uh, what we need to know is that these books, although they were written to Theophilus, they weren't just for him. They were for you and me as well. Let me, let me show you why. Back at Acts 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. There's a word here in verse one that is key to understanding the relevance of the book of Acts for you and me today. I want you to look at it. If you have your Bible open in your lap, if not, on the screen, look at verse one. Think about what word is the word that is key to understanding why Acts is relevant to you and me today and not just Theophilus. You don't have to yell it out loud. I just want you to, this is active exercise here. It's, it's the word began. The word began. Luke says in the first book, which is his gospel of Luke, he says in the first book, I covered what Jesus did and taught until the day he was taken up. So consider with me what you know about the first book, about the gospel of Luke. This is the birth of Christ as the promised Messiah to a virgin named Mary. This is his miracles of healing the sick and raising the dead and walking on water and turning the water into wine and feeding the 5,000 and calming the storm. This is his preaching in the synagogues, the Sermon on the Mount and the, and the parables. This is his betrayal and his, and his arrest, his ultimately being mocked and beaten and crucified on a Roman cross for sins he didn't commit. This also includes his lifeless body being taken down from that cross and put in a tomb only for a few of his disciples to come the next morning and find the stone moved and the tomb empty. This is everything from the birth to the day that he was taken up, which is the moment that after spending 40 days with his disciples, proving to them that he actually did resurrect from the dead, this is the moment that Luke 24, the way he describes it, that the, the body, the physical body of Jesus is carried up into heaven. This is the first book, okay? The gospel of Luke. But here in Acts, Luke refers to that as all that Jesus began to do and teach. Which means what? That that was only the beginning. Now this doesn't mean that Jesus has more work left to do in order to provide salvation for his people. He doesn't. We covered that in Hebrews. Sacrifice once for all. It just means that he's not done. That, that Jesus was doing and teaching and he is now still doing and teaching. I read one uh, commentary this week that said the, the book of Acts ends with a comma and not with a period. And so if you flip to Acts 28, verse 31, and you see that you're gonna be disappointed because there's actually a period there, all right? But his point is, Jesus is still working and teaching. 
And even though he has ascended to heaven, and we're gonna cover this over the next couple weeks, the Bible says he's not taking a break for a bit or he hasn't moved on to something else, right? Because not only has he called people to himself and reconciled them into a relationship with him, but he has reconciled a people to one another called the church, and he is actively working in their lives to change them, and he is actively working through their lives on mission with him. And the Bible says there's a day coming where he will return and he will restore all that sin has broken in the world. And from that moment until all of eternity, his church, you and me, those of us who have put our faith in Christ, we will be with him forever. Luke says part one was only the beginning because Jesus is still working and he's still teaching, only now he's doing that work through us. That's what it means to be the church, that he is doing that work through us. And um, this is what we're gonna see in the book of Acts. The Lord Jesus Christ, although he has ascended to heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father, he is empowering his people through his spirit to work in their lives and through them. We're gonna see things like in chapter four where Peter and John, after being uh, arrested for proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're brought before a religious council in Jerusalem. And it's the same religious council who just a couple months before that had um, wrongly sentenced Jesus to be publicly mocked and beaten and crucified for sins that he didn't commit. And so they drag Peter and John out of their cells where they've been arrested and they basically say to them, who do you think you are to continue preaching that Jesus is raised from the dead? And they threaten them and they warn them and they say, if you keep doing this, then what happened to him is gonna happen to you. And here's how they respond. Acts four, verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So remember, the question that we're gonna ask as we study this book together is what was it that marked them? What was it that, they, that formed them into who they were in their lives with God and their lives with one another? We, if you ask that question of Acts 4, you might say, well, they were bold. They were create, courageous. They had this fearlessness to share the gospel despite the consequence or the cost on their lives. And, and that would be right, and we'll get to Acts 4 in maybe April or something, okay? There's something that we need to see first. Because if you know the story of the disciples in Luke's gospel, particularly of Peter, you know that the account in Acts 4 is actually a huge transformation. Because when the disciples, or rather when Jesus was arrested, where are the disciples? They're hiding. They bail on him, right? Out of fear, out of a desire to protect themselves, they bail on Jesus. Peter denies Jesus in front of his face despite the fact that just a few hours before, Jesus looks at Peter and says, actually, before the sun rises, you're gonna deny me three times. And Peter stands up and he just, in front of everybody, just says, even if I must die, I would never deny you, right? And then just a couple hours later, Peter's pressed. He gets all angry and defensive and he says, I don't know the man. I do not know the man, even when he's questioned by strangers who had no power and authority over him. So what happened to him? What happened to these disciples that, that they were so cowardly that they would bail on Jesus right after declaring that they're gonna go with them even to their death? What happened to them? They could stand in front of the same men who sentenced Jesus to death and say, whether it's right in the sight of God to, to listen to God or listen to you, that's for, up to you to judge. But we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard, right? What was it that they had seen and heard? 
the resurrected Jesus. They had seen him alive. Look back at Acts 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. After he had given command through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. The transformation of these disciples begins with Jesus convincing them that he truly was resurrected from the dead. This is it. Jesus being resurrected from the dead, this is the thing that they were founded on. This is the thing that they were formed by, the reality that Jesus Christ is not dead, but he is alive. And church, the same thing is true for you and me. And at its core, the resurrection is not a religious claim. It is a historical claim. Any, any historian worth his salt, if you read it, the, the, the historical evidence around something happening to a Jewish man named Jesus in this time period is undeniable, right? You cannot deny Jesus existed, Jesus died on the cross, right? So, or you can't even deny that he existed, he died on the cross, and that something big must have happened after his resurrection. That cannot be denied in history. So those who don't wanna believe in his resurrection are actually forced to come up with their own stories of what actually happened. And the, the two primary ones are one, the disciples stole the body, or two, that Jesus didn't really die, okay? Now, now both of these are incredibly implausible, right? Let's think about this. So either the disciples who l literally are cowards and are hiding from Jesus as he's being arrested and crucified, something happens and they, they become Jason Bourne and they sneak past the guards and somehow uh, come out of hiding and no one sees them and they move the one or two ton stone that's in front of that and somehow they get Jesus' body and they get it out of there and no one sees them. Or after his suffering and crucifixion, Jesus is so depleted of blood, the, the guys who, who know when someone dies because this wasn't their first crucifixion, they check Jesus' pulse and again, because he's so depleted of blood, he didn't have one. So they declare him dead, they pull him down, but he didn't really die. And the reason why people saw him afterwards is because he was alive the whole time. And somehow, after all that, he's able to crawl his way out of the tomb, come out of hiding, and show up to his disciples. So those, there are other theories. Those are the most popular. You know what I think is the best apologetic against both of those theories? The disciples themselves. Because it wasn't just Peter, right? All 12, or 11, because minus Judas, all 12 of the disciples who had abandoned Jesus before his death eventually lose their life unwilling to deny that Jesus is alive. What happened? What happened to them, right? Let me ask you this. Would every single one of them give their lives if they had Jason Bourne, Jesus' body, out of the tomb? Now, maybe half of them. Maybe a handful of them go, we're, we're taking this lie to our grave. But somebody, when their life is being threatened, is gonna say, hey, it's all a hoax, we took him. And I'll show you where he's buried, right? Would they lose their lives if Jesus didn't really die, but he was beaten so badly that these professional death guys thought he was dead, right? And, and they declare him dead, but he, but he wasn't. So they put him in the tomb and somehow Jesus is still alive and he miraculously recovers and he's able to somehow move the tomb or move the stone and make his way out and no one sees him and he gets to his disciples and he knocks on the door. What would he look like? 
beaten, bloody, the beard ripped from his face, gaping wounds in his back. Do you think that is what instilled confidence in them? No. Do you think that's what Peter and John mean in Acts 4 when they say, we can't help but speak of what we've seen and heard. We saw him busted and bloody, but man, he can take a beating. No. They had seen him alive because he was. And it wasn't easy for them to believe. Right? Verse 3 says that after his suffering, Jesus spent 40 days proving to them that he was alive. And, and the past couple of weeks, I've spent several hours just reading through all of these accounts in the gospel narratives. So this post-resurrected, pre-ascended Jesus, okay? Um, I'll just encourage you to do that if you are interested. Um, if you do that, what you will see is account after account after account where the resurrected Jesus is not only seen by his disciples. It wasn't like I saw him, like Bigfoot ran by or something. He wasn't just seen by his disciples. He spends time with them, 40 days. He spends time with them. He talks to them. They touch him. He, they think he's a ghost. They, they just assume that, that it, this is his spirit, and there he is. And he proves to them that he's not a ghost by eating a meal with them. And that was the common uh, idea in the, in the culture at this time, that the ghosts don't eat. And so he must, have, he must be alive. And church, this is what produced the transformation in them. It's what they were founded on. It's what they were formed by, that Jesus actually came back to life. That he breathes again with the lungs that were pierced through with the spear. And that he walks again on the feet that were nailed to the cross. They believe he was alive. They touch his scars in his hands. And let me just say this. If you aren't convinced this morning, if you're on the fence, if you're skeptical, you are free. You are free to ask the question, what if it's not true? You are. Jesus is not afraid of that question. We are not afraid of that question. You are free to ask the question, what if it's not true? Actually, I want you to see how Jesus responds to one of his disciples who is skeptical, right? One page over, John chapter 20, one page back to the left. It'll also be on the screen. So Jesus has died, he's resurrected, he has not yet ascended. This is one of those accounts I was talking to you about in this 40-day window. John 20, verse 24 says this. Now, Thomas... One of the 12 called the twin was not with them when Jesus came, right? So he had appeared to them before and gone away. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, he says this, I will never believe. Now think about this. This isn't the first time that the disciples heard about Jesus dying and resurrecting. He tells them over and over and over again in the gospels. He says, the son of man must be lifted up. Like this has to happen. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna be resurrected. And then Thomas here, who has been hearing that for a while from Jesus, it actually happens. He hasn't seen Jesus yet, but he hears from one of his friends who he should trust. Hey, we saw the Lord. And his first thought is, unless I can see it for myself, I will never believe it. Okay, imagine how Jesus could respond in that moment. To Thomas, he could pop up, boom, in the door and go, are you kidding me? <laughs> After all of this, it's not enough for you just to hear these guys telling you that they saw me. You, you said, I gotta touch him, right? That's how he could respond. Look how he does respond. Verse 26, eight days later, which I don't know why it was eight days, maybe just letting Thomas squirm a little bit. His disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. 
Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said this to Thomas, you put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand and place it in my side. He says, do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet they believe. Again, Jesus could rebuke him, he doesn't. How gracious and kind. What does this teach us about the character and nature of Jesus that in that 40 days, he wants them to know for certain he's alive. And not spiritually alive, just some spiritual, this is a physical, bodily resurrection, right? You are free to ask the question, what if it isn't true? Just like with Thomas, Jesus will enter into those doubts with you. But if you ask that question, what if it isn't true? You ask this one too. What if it is? What if it is true? Because if Jesus is alive, that changes everything. Jesus being alive is the key to the whole thing. It's what the church is founded on. It's what we're formed by. You think about this definition for discipleship. If Jesus is dead, there is no invitation to follow him. If he's dead, there's no identity given to us, offered to us by Jesus. If he's dead, then there is no power to change. If he's dead, then there is no mission. If he's dead, then church is not this people who are reconciled out of being enemies with God to being belonging to him as daughters and sons. And we're not this people reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. If Jesus isn't alive, church, this is just a place you come, I guess, to feel better about yourself. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 19, he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Right before this, he basically says, if Jesus isn't alive, then Christianity is a lie, that our faith is empty and this life is it. This is all we have. And so don't come to church, you might as well live it up. Right, eat, drink, and be merry. You might as well. Look again, verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all most people to be pitied, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And why does that matter? I want you to think for a second about why does it matter that Jesus wasn't just a good teacher in the first century who helped a lot of people and then was willing to die for them? Why does it matter? Because if Jesus is alive, it means your faith isn't empty and this life isn't the end. Death isn't the end. If Jesus is alive, then your faith isn't empty and we can be confident that our debt has been paid in full because church, the Bible makes no mistake that the, the cost of sin is death and if death hasn't been defeated, then we still got some work to do, right? And, and, and a lot of us, maybe we think about it this way, maybe the bill has been paid, like we just had this super nice dinner and Jesus covered it all, but he says, hey, why don't you pick up the tip? Or, you know, Jesus pays your mortgage off in full, Used that illustration a couple weeks ago. But now it's up to you to keep paying the property tax and insurance. And that's a silly illustration, but, but that's how a lot of us live. That we think that Jesus brings us from death to life and into God's love, but it's up to us to do enough if we want to stay there. And church, that is not the gospel. Jesus did not just come live and die in your place paying the penalty for your sin. Three days later, the gospel is he burst forth resurrecting gloriously in this physical bodily resurrection forever securing for you and me victory over sin and death. If Jesus isn't alive, then all it means is that he was willing to die for sin, but he was not powerful enough to defeat it. But if he's alive, 
we can be confident that all of our sin is paid for because every one of our sins was future sin when Jesus paid for it on the cross and when he walked out of the tomb. Church, the central message of Christianity is not primarily one of positivity. You can do better. It's not primarily one of exclusivity. We're better than other people. It's not primarily one of activity. We can actually help these other people. The central message of Christianity is one of victory. That Jesus is victorious. He has defeated sin and death. And he invites us to come to him in honesty about the messiness of our lives because he sees it all. And he doesn't offer us, do better, try harder. What he does is he says, I'm gonna take your guilt and your shame, every bit of it. I'm gonna put it on me, I'm gonna take it to the cross and it will be nailed there, paid in full forever. And then I'll take my righteousness, I'm gonna lay it on your head. And so now forevermore, when God the Father looks and sees you, he doesn't see all the reasons why you don't measure up, he sees all the reasons why I have. You forever belong to me as a son and daughter and forever to one another as brothers and sisters. Jesus is alive. And so your faith isn't empty. One more thing. And the death isn't the end. Look back at verse three, Acts one. He presented himself, what's the word? Alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So he spent 40 days convincing them that he truly was resurrected from the dead and it says, there was one thing specifically that he wanted them to understand, that he was speaking to them about the kingdom of God. If you don't know what the kingdom of God is, the easy way to think about it is this is the rule and reign of King Jesus. His disciples had an understanding of what the kingdom of God would be like. We'll see that in a couple weeks. They thought it was gonna be a physical kingdom. What it was really about was the king laying down his life so that we could be with him forever. This shows us that Jesus wants his disciples to have a clear picture. Not just these guys, but you and me too. If we're following him, if we're disciples of Jesus, he wants us to have a clear picture for our lives and ultimate reality. And he's talking to them about the kingdom of God. And what that shows us is that Jesus wants us to know, church, this life isn't all there is. We belong to the eternal kingdom of God, this ever-increasing joy and gladness and worship of the God of the universe with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation forever. We read it earlier, Ephesians 2 verse seven says, in the coming ages, millennia after millennia after millennia, Jesus died for us so that in the coming ages, he, God the Father, might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I said this, I think Christmas Eve or something like that. I'm gonna say it as much as I think about it because it's so compelling for me to think about this is what the Christian life is about, not just this. It doesn't mean this doesn't matter, it's that this isn't all there is. That every moment that we experience after Jesus returns will somehow be better than the one before it. Which means that to be the church, we are founded on and formed by this truth, Jesus is alive. And it means that we spend our lives as citizens of the kingdom of God instead of spending our lives, all of our time, energy, and effort building the kingdom of self because we belong to him. And because of Jesus, we will be with him forever. Church, Jesus is alive. Let me pray for us and then we're gonna sing and respond about just that. Father, we're grateful for the truth of your word. I thank you that it is not up to me or any of these people 
to do enough to earn our way into your love and approval. In fact, you have been honest to us in your word that it is impossible. And so help us, God, to believe that Jesus is alive, that he has paid the penalty for our sin in full. For the folks in the room who are doubting God, I pray that you would meet them in their doubts, that you would, like you did for your disciples, convince them and convince us all the more that you have risen, and so too one day we will. We pray this in Jesus' name.